save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, and welcome to Our Wild World. As I often say on this program, conservation is about people, and that we have only one Earth, and if we don't care, who will? Through the years of Our Wild World, the theme has always been to guide, to reconnect us with nature, to feel its source and its flow, and that there is a bond that connects all life on Earth, that wildness is critical to our humanity, our psyche, and that in losing wildness, we will lose a deep core of our being human. It is my honor and pleasure today to bring you one of our legends in conservation, Michael Soule. Michael is widely considered the father of conservation biology, a term so ubiquitously used today we forget that it is a relatively new term of bringing science and soul together with respect to the fate of biodiversity. Michael has published numerous books on biology, conservation biology, and the social and policy context of conservation, and dozens of articles on population and evolutionary biology, population genetics, island biogeography, trophic cascades, biodiversity policy, ethics, and myriad other topics. When it comes to where we are today, Michael is neither an optimist nor a pessimist, but a possibilist, and connecting with our emotions, passions, can be the driving force needed today to better the world, and for all of us who genuinely engage with environmental problems. In a recent interview with The Sun magazine, he stated, We only protect what we love. So, today we're going to delve into how following our motions that our grief over this permeating sense of loss may possibly be our best way forward out of the crises we find ourselves in and that value means so much more than economics. Good morning, Michael. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. Good morning, Ellie. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. It's a, a pleasure to have you. As I was saying, you are certainly one of my mentors, whether you've known it or not, as you are to many. I've been following your work and definitely am on the side of that when we love something, we tend more to care for it. So it seems to be a big problem today with so many people more connected to their devices and uh, looking at nature through a virtual window, the TV or these devices, and actually getting out into it. So you've said that you've always loved and will always love wild nature. Can you tell us a bit more about this and where you think the source of this love comes from, especially in the midst of a society that does not seem to particularly love or value it today? It's really hard to know where things come from. And, you know, there's always been this, this discussion about how much is nature and how much is nurture, how, how much is genetic and how much is environmental. Um, I, since I was a kid, I just liked to play outside, often alone. And I, I, would, I would wander around in the chaparral and around San Diego or, or go to the coast, to the, to the sunset cliffs and and uh, I, would, I would collect animals and 
uh, such, such as abalone and lobster to bring home for the family to eat. And I was just always, always in nature as much as I could be, including the Anza Borrego Desert, which was just over the hills from San Diego. And so it's, it's hard to say where things come from, but uh, I, I think it's partly genetic. Well, you know, you said an, an important thing. You and I are of an older generation. And perhaps, you know, these newer generations with these devices are not spending time out in nature. Do you think that has something to do with this disconnect? Yes, and I don't think it's the fault of the children. I think it's the fault of the parents. Oh, that must have been about 20 or 30 years ago where there was a kidnapping somewhere in in Texas or some other state. Uh, and... Uh, at that point, people started to be very leery of letting the kids go outside and wander around and disappear. And when, you know, when I was a kid, I, I, I'd leave the house in the morning and, and, and maybe come back for lunch and then go out again and disappear. And the par- our parents didn't mind that. They, they knew that, that the neighbors uh, would take care of me if I got into trouble. It, it's an irrational fear of kidnapping, I think, that started this trend. So people are now much more watchful and cautious about letting their children play outside. I I think you have a a major point there, but I can, you know, with the recent shootings and things going on in school and the war on terror, these last 20 years have changed uh, socially. So I'm sure in the nurture part, of this conversation of what you were saying earlier, uh, parents t- tend to fear letting their children loose, as you'd said. So it's a fear mentality that seems to run us today. But I think it's a, to a great sense of loss that children are not playing outside and getting into the dirt and seeing what's happening out there in our wild nature. And so this would be a question for you. What is it about the wild part of nature that appeals to you as opposed to the human-dominated or planned landscapes? I really don't know what accounts for my, uh, my interest and passion while nature. It's just, just one of those traits that, 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 that I have. It, my parents weren't, uh, weren't weren't very interested in nature. They never took me camping, but I when I was a in, when I was a teenager, um, a biology teacher in high school told me that uh, there were a bunch of kids who, who who went down to the Natural History Museum. This was in San Diego, and they called themselves Junior Naturalists and and. Uh, so I, I went down there and, and it was it was just a, just a wonderful discovery to find my people because I found all these other kids who were equally passionate about wild things and, and going on field trips going to the to, to the desert and to the mountains. So I was I was lucky that way. I'm wondering you know it brings up a question in my mind and I don't really have an answer to it right now, but I'm wondering if these field trips to museums and nature and uh, being out of doors are done as much in schools today 
and, you know, letting children run out and play during recess when so much of their time is uh, occupied with uh, planned activities. And I think sometimes with these planned activities that leaving a child alone to become a little bit bored, to start to be imaginative and use their imagination to start creating things, especially out of doors, might be a little bit missing today. What do you think? Yes, I I certainly agree. But there's another issue, too, and that is people are much more concerned in, in this generation with liability than, than they were when, when I was a kid. And I, I never heard the word liability. That is, uh, people are afraid that, that if you go outside to a neighbor's and you get hurt, the neighbor's going to be sued. So uh, your parents are going to be sued. Somebody's going to be sued. So I, I think that's another factor that, that we become a very litigious society that, that's inhibiting people from doing what's natural. Excellent point. Excellent point. So you've described the wild world that you and I and others love so much as being in a state of crisis and conservation biology as a crisis discipline. Many of our listeners are familiar with the broad outlines of what this crisis crises are that we're facing today, climate change, biodiversity loss, species extinction. Tell us what you mean when you use the word crisis discipline, and what does this involve for you? Well, this is a unique time in the history of the Earth and the history of, of, of civilization because uh, we've become so powerful. Our technology is so powerful. A, a person today must be a hundred times more powerful because of technology, because we're capable of, of driving around what, what my wife calls gas toys, large gas-driven machines, including automobiles, that, that destroy nature, and they also insulate us from be, really being in nature. And so, so I, I think that the technology itself, the availability of all these toys, uh, including computers and there are so many distractions, technological distractions, all these screens, for example, that we look at all the time. We see, we see teenagers now walking down the street for blocks and never taking their eyes off the screen that they're, that they're holding in their hand. So it's really hard for, for children to really experience nature because there's so many barriers in between them and the real world. I'd agree with that 100%. I talk about that a lot on this program, that we need to like put the device down, step away, put down the remote, and just go walk outside and spend some time uh, walking, laying, sitting out in the yard amongst the trees and just shut your mouth and open your eyes and your ears. And there's a whole world out there to be experienced. What I've been feeling, and I think what a lot of people are feeling, is a deep sense of grief and loss. Do you think the earth itself is feeling this grief and loss? Do you think the earth can, as in terms of personhood, be feeling this and that might be part of what is creating this sense of despair today? Or is nature just an unforgiving 
sense of responses? Wow, well, that's a hard one. <clears throat> uh, I, I, I've had, you know, experiences, mystical experiences in nature, but uh, I'm I'm a scientist too, so I have I have two ways of, of, of experiencing things. One is from a scientific perspective, and the other is from a subjective, uh, psychological perspective. I, I, I don't really know how to answer that question. I, 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 though I spent a lot of time meditating, and I lived at a Zen center for five years, uh, and I've had mystical experiences. We have sentient species that we know of, do you think it can travel down through the trophic levels that Earth herself is responding? Or is it just man's impact that is creating all these things, that it is strictly a response to what we are doing, CO2, climate change? Or do you think there's a grand feeling in there. I, I don't know. I, I don't have a feeling that 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 nature as a whole is is feeling pain because of uh, all, all the noise and, and all the technology and all the destruction of habitats. Uh, I think individuals feel that sometimes, but maybe less than before because we're so insulated now. We have we have all all these screens and these gadgets uh, that distract us and you know people just don't get outside and, and especially alone whenever I go hiking in the backcountry and, and and there's people around like in a national park I'm amazed by how people don't ever shut up they don't stop talking and if you're talking in nature you're not you're not you're not being in nature I was I was out in on a, on a trip a field trip and I think it was in Baja many years ago with Arne Ness, the founder of the Deep Ecology Movement, and, and I had a bunch of graduate students with me. Uh, I had, had just finished lecturing them <laughs> about listening and being quiet, especially around Arne Ness, who is such a deep and, and interesting guy. And I said, you know, just, just watch Arne and see how he interacts with nature. And about five minutes later, when Arne and I were sitting under a bush in the desert, the students all walked by within about 10 feet of us, and none of them saw us. They were all talking and chattering and didn't have any, 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 any span in, in, in their consciousness to, uh, to be aware of what was going on in the, in the world around them. So, and I, I think that's exacerbated by having all these electronic devices that, uh, that, that keep us uh, from, from seeing and listening and and feeling what's happening. And I think we're also so inured these devices and constant talking. I mean, in, in radio and TV, there's nothing worse than dead air. So I think our human condition in this culture, where we are surrounded by all this constant noise, um, constant filling of screens with many layers and overlays, headphones, multitasking, that we're not comfortable being silent. Yes, that's exactly right. We're, we're, un, we're uncomfortable. 
uh, when there's silence, like when conversation stops when you're in a group and people start feeling nervous and embarrassed if there's not chatter going on. So maybe that's a place where we can help our listeners and those folks who are feeling this sense of disconnection, that this is a place to start, to just stop talking for a while and let the silence grow and start bringing in and opening up the other senses to what's going on around you, that it's all not a narcissistic, self-driven world, that there are other things going on. Yes, sometimes one feels like saying, just shut up, everybody. <laughs> but but that, that's rude and uh, it's not appropriate. But just be quiet and listen and watch and smell, see what's going on around you, feel, feel what's going on around you without, without interfering with it or, or, or feeling that pressure to continue our, our chatter. I think it can be done. I've often done it on safaris when I'm with people, and I'm sure you, as you, as you've just said, you know, when we're surrounded with other people, and the chatter and the laughter and the giggles, I often just say shh and um, please be quiet because there's so much going on. And if you want to know where the leopard is, watch the baboons or watch the impala and see what they're doing because they're all giving us signs as to what's happening out in nature. And once we start paying attention to that, that interconnected web is astonishing to just watch and and not necessarily participate in all the time as recreation, but just be a part of it. Yes, it, it, it seems a little rude when when sometimes when when I'm with a group and and walking along a trail in the backcountry and uh, I know there's wildlife around, but with, with all the chatter and noise we're making, it disappears. And it, it's only when you when you sit down and are quiet for a while that the creatures come out and you can experience them. So I, you're absolutely right, and I've said this often. You know, people will say, how come I'm not seeing any wildlife? And I'll say, well, they heard us coming yesterday. So if we just be quiet and sit still for a little while and become a part of the landscape, we just might see something interesting. So right now we're going to have to step away for a short break. But stick with us because we're going to get deeper into this sense of what is going on today and how we and our emotions and being quiet and tuning in just might help us turn things around. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect, it's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. 
She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie, our Wild World, and my guest Michael Soule. Michael, you've been you've observed that finding lasting solutions to the ecological crisis is extremely hard because of the way we're organized on a social level. And we spent some time in the last section talking about this that our devices and all this these high-tech toys and gas-driven toys are separating us, not only from the natural world, but from each other's. But in terms of the natural world, this comes down oftentimes to politics and economics. For instance, you've called it political suicide for an American politician to publicize these kinds of ecological issues, that, given that so few people seem to care. So how can we integrate this into a reorientation of the mindset and inspiration to bring billions of young people and people of all ages to care about nature? 
Or do you think the fact that the current dread that people think it's already gone is too overwhelming? So many of of our people, our citizens, our children live in cities and towns where they have virtually no exposure exposure to nature. And that's a big problem. When you know, when I was a kid, um, I'm over eighty now. Uh, the world was a lot different, and our parents would kick us outside in the morning, and and uh, and we we'd go playing in the canyons or in the in the hills. And, and nobody worried about us because they knew there was, there was nothing to worry about. But these days, there's so many distractions and so much apparent things to fear, which, which are not really there, but people are afraid of the wild, so that, that children just don't have a chance to be exposed to, to nature. So uh, what do you think it is that, because you said an important point, People are afraid of nature. I often get that when I was near something. They say, weren't you afraid? As though every living thing is an immediate threat. So how do we get over this hump that being out in nature, when you're out on a hike, that it's not just about your exercise or your burning calories or your um, getting your fitness level in for the day. But that nature, when you're in it and you're with that flow with it, that you see what's going on and you become a part of its, its biology. Yes. When my grandchildren visit us in, 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 uh, in Colorado uh, from other states, they're not used to being outside in these open spaces with, with wild creatures. And it takes them a while to become comfortable. So uh, I think we have to model that behavior for our children and our grandchildren by going outside with them and showing them there's nothing to fear. Another problem is that that every time there is an incident of any kind of violence or danger, it's spread all over the media, immediately all over the world. So we, we hear about any disaster, any crisis that's happening, and it makes us super conscious, over the, over, overly aware of, or, and overly fearful of being alone or outside or in a quiet place. And we just don't, the children don't have that, those experiences modeled for them by their family and by their friends. You make a good point that most of the news that we hear is the bad news when it's um, like a lion or an, an, an interaction or an accident in nature that lion attack or, you know, someone's fallen off the side of a mountain. And it also has gotten to the point where people seem to go for extreme sports and want to get this extreme risk as part of a a game almost and conquering uh, their own self-fear and in a way conquering nature. How can we drop this back that it, it doesn't need to be such an extreme encounter that nature just happens out there, that it's not going to be about that wild, crazy, perhaps dangerous encounter. Yes, there's another aspect to this. That's that's true what you said. Uh, it, it, that is, pe- when people go outside now, 
they they see the outdoors not as a place full full of living creatures, but as a gymnasium, a place to exercise and 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 demonstrate their prowess in various kinds. So uh, we have to start thinking about nature is is not a not a gymnasium, not a place to to uh, to demonstrate our fitness in that sense, but but a place to enjoy the rest of the world that that we're isolated from for most of our lives. And it used to be, you know, back in my childhood, and certainly in your childhood, that just being out in nature is what made you fit. Life was not easy when you had to live off the land and plow your fields, grow your gardens, and we're just, we're not fit in terms of experiencing the world, we're fit by being in gymnasiums and exercising and recreating. So another thing we can possibly do is take this attention, our, our sort of narcissistic self-attention about fitness and put it out into the real world and awaken our senses and revitalize this communion with nature as a part of our fitness. Yes, that's, that's part of it. There's another part of this problem, too, and that is uh, we're afraid of getting dirty. Our parents are afraid of getting dirty and getting muddy and eating mud when, when we're two-year-olds. And, you know, it doesn't, hurt, it doesn't hurt us at all. In fact, it's probably good for us to get different kinds of bacteria in, in our system. But there's this, there's this the feeling of abhorrence about being dirty by nature, and so it's 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 a whole attitude about uh, what is what it means to to be exposed to the to the natural world. It's it's and parents want to make us afraid of nature now instead of uh, instead of appreciating it. Well, you've brought up several things. You know this antibacterial sterile. Uh, world that we choose to live in and all the uh, advertising that nature is um, will can kill you so you have to be antiseptic so certainly there are much more microbes and diseases out there than there were when you and I were children but that doesn't mean that a little bit of dirt will kill you and that we should get dirty and get our hands in there. So this goes along with, you've said that humans unfortunately possess a number of characteristics that seem to predispose us for the sort of crisis we're facing, and those examples we've been talking about are just some of them. And for another example, you've noted that your mentor at Stanford, Paul Ehrlich, says humans did not evolve to deal with long-term threats that were afflicted with, among other things, short-termism, self-instincts, and cognitive biases. Can you tell us what you mean by that and a way for us to mitigate and work around these characteristics? Well, I can use uh, global warming as a, as a problem. Uh, uh, we, as a civilization, are seem unable to deal with global warming. Our our, our governmental systems, our politics, almost st- precludes us from being effective at stopping this major environmental crisis that could destroy civilization, as some people have said. Uh, so, the world has changed so much that uh, we can't 
we, we're having trouble adapting to it. Uh, it's really a, a problem of, of the, that our technology and civilization have have immersed us in, and it's I don't know how we're going to get out of this. Uh, I think it's important for for people who are listening to this program or have an opportunity to to take their children outside to do that to to make it a goal a responsibility of being a parent of taking children out and exposing them to what what the real world is like the natural world i'd agree 100% the masses the global individuals to get our leaders to consider this versus where we're going now under as an example, our current administration and degrading the environmental protections that we have in place. Oh, that's a huge, huge problem, Ellie, and I'm not sure how to address it uh, at this point. Could you, could you maybe be more specific? Um, okay, we've seen people en masse come together during an immediate crisis, hurricanes, disasters, terrorism attacks, school shootings. So this predisposition for immediate compassion, why can't we or don't we sustain this for the medium and let alone the long haul? Our, our culture uh, almost forces us to have a short-term focus, not a long-term focus. So, um, in the last 50 years, when do you think the general population became so very short-sighted? In the 60s, we knew we had to save landscapes. When you were um, bringing up conservation uh, uh, biology and Ed Wilson was talking about biodiversity, we had this concept of a whole earth, that every living system was connected. And then somewhere along the line, we started sort of drilling down into rabbit holes of individual things versus this larger connection. How do you think we can reorient our mindset to reconnect to the larger picture? Well, going back to what we were talking about earlier, and particularly with regard to to children, Uh, those people who are listening to this program or, or who, who, who are interested in nature uh, have a responsibility to make sure that they take their children and their grandchildren to places that are still wild and where, they, where their children can experience the other, that is, creatures and, and wildness and, and a little bit of of a possible danger too. That is, they might fall off the edge of the cliff. But there's this unnatural and non-adaptive uh, fear of nature. That it, it, and partly it's because of ignorance. People don't understand what nature is. They don't understand uh, wild species. They don't understand habitats and. Uh, so it's, it's, it's becoming a, a negative feedback loop in, in that the less exposure people have, children have to nature, the, the more fear they, they have, possibly. So when, when I go out with children, I, I look for snakes because that's one of the things everybody's afraid of. And, I, and most snakes are not harmful. They're not poisonous. 
There are very few rattlesnakes. So uh, it's really, really interesting to pick up a snake and hear, hear all, all the screaming and, uh, and, and that goes on when, when you hold a snake in your hand. And most snakes are very calm and, and uh, they're harm, harmless. So and the, same, the same goes for a beetle. I mean, everybody goes, oh, yuck, a, an insect. So again, I think it's the responsibility of, of mature adults to educate themselves and then, then expose their children to uh, these, these creatures and these different habitats and different places. So once again, it's, it's about getting out there with your kids, with your uh, siblings, with your peers, not just young children, but I would, um, I would point to the millennial group who is, is so connected to the device world to put them down and go take a walk and just look. And that doesn't mean we have to interfere with nature by picking up critters and um, manhandling them, but just watch them. Uh, sincerely watch them for a while and see what their lives are about and perhaps stand in their shoes and look at the world from their perspective. A beetle's world is very different than ours in terms of how we see the world. We tend to look at very far horizons rather than what's right in front of our face. Indeed. I, I think sometimes it, it, it's uh, I'm tempted sometimes to to tell people I'm with when I'm outside to uh, bluntly just shut up for a while. But uh, you don't have to put it that way. You can say let's let's try being quiet for five minutes and not talking and and see how difficult that is because the tendency is especially with with children and teenagers to just chatter constantly, which, which precludes them seeing anything because it, it, frightens, it frightens all the animals away. Uh, that's really hard to do, but, but when, when my family visits Colorado sometimes with, with the children and grandchildren, I, I try to, to play it as a kind of a game to, and to, to, to encourage people to have a little, maybe five minutes of quiet and just keep walking and seeing, and then 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 ask them. Okay, what did you see? what did you hear? What did you see? What did you see that you wouldn't have seen if we were making a lot of noise? And t- t- turn it into a game of some kind. That's a wonderful idea, and I learned an exercise once that I found very helpful. That uh, give a, a group of people before we go outside one raisin, and have them eat and be conscious of putting this raisin in their mouth and savoring it, chewing it slowly and observing and being fully immersed in the sensations of eating this one raisin. And then take that as a preparation and walk outside to begin to savor from the first step of walking out of doors what you're going to to be seeing, feeling, sensing, smelling, and hearing. And I found it yeah. works. Yes, there's another, n- another trick like that, which is then give them another raisin and say, does it taste exactly the same as the first one? And, and usually it doesn't. And people, people begin to see that, that that diversity in things that they, they don't normally uh, consider. There's 
are diverse. So there's lots of little exercises like that that they do uh, usually require quiet. And that's extremely hard for people in our generations, not my generation possibly, but in, in the younger generations, people never experience quiet. They're always looking at screens and listening with earphones to music or some other entertainment. It's, uh, it, it's, it's stressful for children these days to have their have the, the, the devices shut off. Uh, but we can we can turn it into a game and say, what did you learn when your device was shut off and, and we were all quiet that, that you wouldn't have learned or observed when they're on? I think you made an important point that children get stressed out and, you know, if you want to call it ADHD or whatever they label it these days when they're not connected but that important lesson is that this constant need for connection and information continually flowing through all the senses does not give a child or an adult's brain the chance to reach a waveform of balance to where they can actually absorb what's going on around them. So I think learning silence is critically important. It sounds very zen. There's a method in in that, and that is, we when we're quiet, we see and hear and understand things that are, we're not aware of when we're constantly talking, listening to other people talk, listening to devices. Or at least it's we're at least we're able to see and hear it, and then that provides a pathway for discussion amongst a group of what they observed, felt, and sensed. Yes, exactly. I spent, I spent several years in a, in, in a Zen community in Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles, which was funny because uh, downtown Los Angeles is not a quiet place. And one time I was, we were meditating, a, a garbage truck came by and was backing up. You know how, how, how trucks, when they're backing up, have that beep, beep, beep mm-hmm. uh, signal. And we all started laughing because uh, we weren't really aware of the beep, beep, beep most of the time. It was funny to listen to when, when we'd been silent for an hour or two beforehand. And... Uh, so at some, some point, sometimes in, in, in a Zen uh, meditation, people break into laughter when they hear things like that and uh, how incongruous it is with the, with the quiet of meditation. Well, you bring up a good point that when we go quiet and in a lot of meditation, it is focusing on the breath and then catching yourself when you find your thoughts going astray, which is a natural thing. But the point is is to note when that happens and bring mm-hmm. yourself back. And that when you are so deeply involved in being aware of what's flowing through your body and the senses around you are awakening, that we have a tendency to turn off these unnatural man-made sounds or they become a disruption. Yes, I, I, I remember uh, some very frustrating times when I was trying to meditate and, and quiet my mind. It's impossible for me to quiet my mind anyway. But, uh, and, 
after a while, you just can't help but laugh at yourself for how automatically we, we, we entertain ourselves with the chatter, the internal, in, internal dialogue that is so difficult for human beings uh, of our generations anyway to, to turn off, to shut up and to, to be quiet and then not to get angry with ourselves when we find out how difficult it is, but to, 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 to see the humor in that, that inability to just shut up for a while. You're right, and I've heard it described as trying to watch a movie, watching the director's cut, critique, and the director are constantly giving notes on the action, so you never get an opportunity to watch the movie, you're just constantly listening to this dialogue. So it is difficult to turn off this internal dialogue, but it can be done. So we've had a great discussion today of you know, nature versus nurture, this constant uh, social world of devices and constantly being plugged in, and what can happen when we decide to unplug, step outside, sit in nature, and absorb through all our senses and our core being what is out there, and learn to be quiet and quiet ourselves. So, Michael, you've described your outlook on the future as one of possibilism. I, I love that. Help, help us explore this a little bit. Um, explain what you mean by possibilism. And at this point that we're in today of tipping points and trophic cascades and extinction, what can we do that will reignite what's possible for us? Possible is a, is a term that I think uh, I inherited from Arnon Ness, who, who used it in a slightly different way. But to me, it means even though it seems so depressing, what we're doing to wild nature now, and what we're doing to our atmosphere, and vis-a-vis -vis global warming and pollution. But uh, it's not impossible to change this, and it's not impossible to change our attitudes either. So uh, that's that, that. That goes along with with uh, the Dalai Lama's phrase, "Never give up." Uh, it's it's always possible to um, to change our experiences of the world and to change our our impacts on the world. Uh, we give up too easily. In many cases, uh, we're overwhelmed by, uh, say, the pollu plastic pollution in the oceans. But there are people who are actually doing something about it. There are people going out into these gyres in the Pacific Ocean and collecting all the trash that, that's accumulated in, in the middle of the ocean and uh, recycling it. So uh, we, we give up too easily and, and we're, we're dissuaded from action uh, by our inertia. So that's what possibleism comes in. It's important to, to believe and to, to acknowledge that we can make a difference and we can at least change our own experiences of the world even, and, and by example, changing it for others. Well, it's, it's apparently obvious that we can change the world because we have. Where we've gotten to didn't happen overnight. 
it's been a slow slide over the past 50 years to this overconsumption, a, a, a lack of leadership that creates environmental policies that will help conserve our earth and our resources, um, not only for its own sake, because of its aesthetic beauty and its right to life because it's here, but also that it's a it's the basis of our very survival. So when we think of all the possibilities, as I often say, unprecedented challenges bring unprecedented opportunities. We tend these days to focus on all the bad news. And I think that's by design through our media and our politics. So how can we help ourselves with this predisposition to get overwhelmed by everything, find the mental room and the physical space to incorporate optimism and possibilism and focus on the good things that are happening rather than all this bad? One, one, fact, one <clears throat> uh, aspect of this is that humans want to be attractive. We want to be attractive to our friends, to the opposite sex. Uh, we want to be uh, popular enough so that we can, we can improve our economic situation and not alienate people. So one of the things that's important to recognize in this regard is it's sexy to be an optimist. Nobody likes to hang out with people who are downers, who are always moaning and groaning about how bad things are. <clears throat> so I, I think if, if, <clears throat> if, if people realize that uh, uh, the opposite sex, at least, sometimes our own, is attractive to us when we're, when we're, when we're optimistic and that uh, it encourages them, it, it makes them feel good about themselves in the world. I'm just, I'm laughing at the moment because my cat just jumped into my lap. <laughs> See, it's little things, it's little things like that. I have five cats and they're all wandering around me at, at, at this particular moment saying, come play with me. And here I am trying to bring up optimism and hope to our listeners in a conversation with you. And it's hard for them to understand. I can't play with you right now. But that's a really good point, you know, with our pets to take a moment and be here now as they used to say. And suddenly when you do that and put all your senses and your emotions and your smiles and your giggles into this one little bit of nature, it changes everything. It changes your blood pressure. It changes your brain wave. It puts out chemicals and hormones of comfort. So these are some of the things we can do and standing amongst a group of trees or out on a hike will do this for you. Yes, and it makes us more attractive and everybody really down deep inside, if they're honest, wants to be attractive to other people. That's why we have a sense of humor because it makes us more attractive. So, and one of the ways to be attractive is to, to realize that you can always make a positive change. You can make a positive difference and that's and so possibilism is 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 a very healthy attitude to have instead of giving up uh saying well this the situation is difficult 
but here's how we can make it better. And uh, that is serves many purposes, including uh, actually improving the situation in the world, making a positive change, but also being more attractive to other people. And when, when we're more attractive to other people, we're more likely to actually <laughs> facilitate a positive change in, in the society around us. Well, this has been an absolutely wonderful experience talking with you, and it gives me, and I hope our listeners, a lot to think about, that if you want to go back to the um, argument of nature versus nurture, and uh, that we can nurture ourselves, and in doing so, we will nurture the earth, and that also, Michael being a scientist, but also very deeply involved in Zen Buddhism and meditation that we don't have to keep science and spirituality in separate boxes. We can combine them and it might give us a much fuller experience of not only ourselves and our friends, but of the world outside us. Of course. Of course, <clears throat> of course Ellie, and this is, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Again, I can end maybe on a slightly positive note in saying that when we're optimistic and, and enjoying the natural world, uh, it makes us more attractive. And that, 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 that makes other people more optimistic and, and, and more likely to facilitate positive changes in our society. So it comes back to love. You know, if, we, if we love nature and, and love ourselves, uh, we're, we're happy happier and it makes other people happier too so that that brings us full circle we protect what we love so it's critical this at this time in our human history as we had said we are in an unprecedented place to remember that love of each other and of this natural world that gives us life is going to make us more attractive and by following that, it will turn our leaders, our politics, and us around to be in a much more hopeful place to understand the possibilism and possibilities that we have in facing today, tomorrow, and the near future. So once again, Michael, thank you so much for this inspiration. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It's been my pleasure, Ellie, to to be part of this program and to uh, talk about these difficult but 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 not pessimistic subjects. You've nailed it on the head. It is difficult. We do have challenges, but we can overcome a lot of it and turn it around. So that's it for today. In the meantime, step out and go visit our wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. <laughs>